Good morning. It's great to be together and to, uh, it's nice to be back. And thank you for your prayers. So today is my honor and privilege to preach on a couple of important verses, First Corinthians chapter 3. And this may seem uh, odd, or maybe we don't get it sometimes, but the claim that the church is the temple of God is a very important and profound one. And we'll see why when we think about how the people who first heard the gospel in the ancient world understood temples. And so I'll read the text here. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 from the New American Standard. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now, this is an overview, and we'll go into some more details. But before we get any further, I want to point this out. You is plural. You here would be the people who have believed in Christ and trusted in him, and they gather together as his people. There is the temple of God. Previously, Paul used the analogies of God's field and God's building. That was in... I'll summarize in verse 9. Let me read that. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So as that, what we want to look at is how confused people have been throughout the centuries, thinking that there is some particular architecture, structure, building design that's ordained to be the temple of God. There is none. As a matter of fact, the early Christians didn't have magnificent buildings. All they had was Christ, the gospel, one another, the word of God, and the eternal promises of God. And in that context, the gospel went into places that had temples. But these temples, though they may be considered holy by the people who built them, were not the place of God's dwelling. Now, the problem in this context is status rivalry. So we'll go to the rhetorical question. Good timing, because this morning in Sunday school, we found out about rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question has an implied answer. And in the case of 1 Corinthians, this is the first of 10 such questions. And the rhetorical question is, 
do you not know? Why do we call it rhetorical? Because they ought to know. And so in this case, it's ironic. Don't you know? They didn't lack teaching. They didn't lack understanding of the gospel. It had been preached by Paul, by Apollos. But they were not making valid conclusions. So this is the first of 10 such usages in this particular uh, epistle. 10 times. It's the first one. And in this case, the question has to do with people gathered in God's name being his people who should know what God has said. Thank you. And so I'll give you a list of of a bunch of them, and you can get the idea. But this is the first one. In verse of chapter 5, verse 6, another usage, a little leaven. Do you now know a little leaven? Leaven's the whole loaf. In 6.2, do you not know the saints will judge the world? Context, you can't even figure out your own problems. 6.3, saints will judge angels. That's, yep, future. Well, they can't solve their own problems. They sue each other. 6.9, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. 6.15, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? 6.16, There's an unholy union going on when Christians go down to the temples of pagan prostitution. And 6.13 talks about those who are serving or fed. And 9.24, do you not know all run, only one wins the prize. So there's 10 times this is used. Now, in these cases, Paul expects them to have paid attention to the teaching that had been given authoritatively as the word of God and draw reasonable and obvious conclusions. And so in this sense, there's somewhat of a ironic rebuke going on. Another thing that we need to learn from this is that theological truth is essential to correct practice. One of the lies that came into many groups and many educational institutions that have been built supposedly to teach Christians is that theology really isn't important. And the reason that false claim has been made is due to marketing surveys which would go and survey potential religious consumers and ask what they would want if indeed they went to church. And the people who conducted the surveys found out that they weren't saying, well, I want to hear theological truth. I want clear teaching of the Bible that explains who God is, Experience Christ, salvation, heaven and health, sanctification, redemption, future judgment. That's what I want to hear. And because people going about their ordinary lives answer the survey, then uh, 
a program <coughs> is designed <coughs> to make sure that when they get to church, they will not hear theological truth. But that's not what the apostles taught, and they did not consult the pagans to find out what they ought to be teaching in the church. Paul had taught the truth, and he expected that they could use the truth that was revealed and have practices that would follow from what they learned. So uh, important foundational theology should be clear, should be brought forth from Scripture, and our practices will change as God changes us through his word from the inside out. People are not going to hear the truth by listening to the pagan culture. The pagans are very much opposed to the things of God. And when someone doesn't think like pagans supposedly should think, they're considered evil. If you believe in Christ, the truth, the gospel, coming judgment, the need to care about our fellow human beings who are created in the image of God, the world thinks that you are seriously flawed and something needs to be done about it. But we will not allow the pagan culture to determine what we can believe because the church is here to proclaim the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God, and as people are trained, they should indeed know what's happening and why and what the way out is and should know the need for the forgiveness of sins. Now let's look at verse 16 as a whole. Do you not know that you, the Greek has plural here, are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? The word for temple, there's a couple different words. One would talk about a bigger complex, but here it would, the word naos would designate the dwelling place of God in his holiness. And in the case of the pagans, it would be the holy sanctuary where the deity would deemed to, to be residing. And so as we've gone through Luke Acts, and as I've shown many slides from the Bible places uh, work that shows these various extant temples, we see that as the gospel went through the ancient world, oftentimes churches sprung up in various places, whether starting with synagogues or homes or places where people might gather. In the background are various temples, places that were very expensive, highly sophisticated architecture, places that were 
are made to commemorate various deities. Now, in Acts, we saw as Paul went through Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, Athens, Corinth, then to Asia Minor again, Ephesus, there were temples, there were deities, there were a lot of people who would be defending their polytheistic world. But here, the pagans with their temples and their shrines are confronted with the gospel. And in Corinth, here's a gathering or various home gatherings of Christians. And Paul says, you're the temple, you, because you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. If you're born of God, God, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells in you. And therefore, you're a holy people. And it's not necessary that Christians have magnificent structures to point to and say, there, look what we have. Because we're not in a battle for architecture We're in a battle for the truth of the gospel. And one of the grand claims made throughout Acts is that the Holy Spirit indwells believers and God dwells in temples not made with hands. Not made with hands, not man-made or hand-made. And so in the background of temples, the temple Apollos or the temple in Ephesus at Artemis. Paul had already been on Mars Hill where the uh, many philosophers would debate and there are different gods and goddesses. But here is an unimpressive group of people sort of the background already mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians but they are the dwelling place of God, the church as the temple of God. Dr. Gordon Fee says this in his uh, really fantastic commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says, as practicing pagans, see 6, 9, and 8, 7, most of them would have frequented the many pagan temples and shrines, Nioi, which would be a plural for naos or sanctuaries, in their city. Indeed, he says some of them were arguing for the right to continue to do so. Chapters 8 through 10, which, by the way, they ought not to have wanted. But now Paul is calling their attention, says he, to the fact that since there's only one God, and the one God can only have one temple in Corinth, And they themselves, as a gathered community of believers, are that temple. That's it. That's the temple of God, the gathered flock, who knows him, and he dwells in our midst. I'm also going to cite Dr. Thistleton, because his commentary has been so useful to me. Very detailed. And I I thank God that I 
was able to get a hold of that commentary before I began 1 Corinthians. Dr. Thistleton says it is certainly axiomatic in pagan religions of Paul's day that temples reflected the nature and name of their god or goddess. For example, the temple here, uh, here uh, of Artemis, Acts 19.24. Moreover, the notion, says Thistleton, that the God of Israel dwells among his people rather than in temples made with hands was also axiomatic in Hellenistic diaspora Judaism and in the Christian communities whose roots had been in diaspora Judaism. I mean, it says scattered Judaism. And so I'll cite a couple of speeches and acts to point that out. As I've been reading and researching in hopes to gather the thoughts and the research and an understanding of Scripture in order to hopefully, by God's grace, write a book defining the church biblically, this is obviously essential. And in fact, if there's any equivocation of terms in the English language, the, the grandest one is the term church. In fact, the term church has been so abused, confused, and equivocated upon, it becomes nearly meaningless. It was of great interest that I heard Donna share about languages and their usages. And now we have to define church. Because in the minds of Americans, church, first of all, is a building. There's a building down here called church. There's another one over here. There's another one over there. Church, 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 church. What kind of pastor do you have at your church? Um, And so the word has to be defined. But here is speaking of a temple. Let me read Acts 17.24, which Paul spoke in Athens, where they were gathered to these various deities. Acts 17.24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, Paul said, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now he's on Mars Hill. Imagine the architectural prowess and amazing abilities that were put to work in the Roman Empire to build structures, some of which are still there. I was in Greece one time, and we drove there to that area. And here Paul, in the midst of this, says that the Lord of heaven and earth doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He dwells in a people who know him and are born of him and who honor his word and believe in the Savior and have a biblical worldview that means we know God created the entire universe out of nothing. And we believe that there's a creation 
of humans in God's image and a fall in rebellion that we'll talk about later. And they were facing judgment. That's not part of people's worldview. And when they talk about church, they rarely even think about any of those things. The word for dwells, okeo, he dwells in the midst and in people who gather in his name and honor him. It's that simple. Does that mean it's a sin to have a building? No. Does it mean that you have to prove how great you are by investing everything into brick and mortar? Well, that becomes a problem. And in God's providence, I spent a big part of my life dealing with a massive edifice. There was like a millstone around the neck of fellowship because it was so old and so expensive and so um, leaky and expensive and falling apart, it became too much. It was continually a battle because we were stuck in this temple-like edifice that we ended up with, and that's a different story. The point is, if we gather in the name of the Lord and pray for one another and love one another and preach the gospel and share with people the pure word of God, there's God's dwelling place. It doesn't look like much. It's just some folks. It didn't in Paul's day. But it was more powerful than every philosophy, pagan religion, powerful politician, system of government, means of transportation. is more powerful than all of that because God in his holiness is there in our midst. 1 Corinthians 3.17. Here's a solemn warning. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. We have a inclusio or a bracketed saying. You are the temple of God, and in the end, that is what you are. It's emphatic. It brackets the answer to Paul's rhetorical question. It's you. You are God's people. You receive God's promises. You believe the gospel that we preached, Paul said earlier. You were willing to embrace God's wisdom This seems foolish to the world. You are willing to believe that a crucified Jewish Messiah was God's wisdom, God's salvation. That cross which offended the Jews and was moronic to the Gentiles is the wisdom of God, the power of God, the salvation of God, and our hope in his future promises. And where we meet isn't the point 
at all. It's that we gather in his name. Now, how would one destroy the temple of God if it's a temple not made with hands? By abusing the people. By using people gathered in the name of the Lord to know him, to love one another, to pray for one another, and use that for evil ends. To use that to enhance your status amongst your peers. To use that to make it look like you're some pagan preacher. As we go through Acts, we see the false prophets. How are they known? The great power of God. Simon, the great man of God, the great this, the great that. As we've seen in Luke Acts, this problem is already highlighted in the book of Luke. When Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, who was there but Moses and Elijah, the great prophets of the Old Testament? And Jesus is identified as the Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And then we saw one time in Sunday school, when when they get down, they can't cast out the demon. But what are they arguing about? Who's the greatest? In fact, Acts is bracketed that way. It's very amazing. Who's the greatest is the one argument, and it's the worst one you could ever have. And as soon as that topic gets on the table, we've got serious problems. When people are well-known in the American culture as being great pastors and leaders and teachers, and they literally proclaim themselves to be the greatest, how is it that most who identify as Christian don't see that there's a problem? I wondered how often we actually read the scriptures carefully and see the danger sign should be flashing. Red neon, danger, danger, danger. When, when, when did that flash? Whenever the preacher is arguing that he's the greatest. I got a link sent uh, via email of a preacher who I wrote a book about now retiring, claiming to be greater than just about anybody. Now, how could you come to that conclusion and have ever read the New Testament? How could you read Luke Acts as the two-volume work and think that it's a good idea to argue about who's great? Because that argument in itself is a danger sign that it's very likely to destroy the temple of God. And if we fear God, we treat the dear saints as holy because God made them holy. The saints are not here to enhance the status of the preacher. 
Never, ever. We can't know these things. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Don't go passing judgment before the time. We don't know, but we can appreciate when someone shares with us and cares for us and prays for us and teaches us the truth. And we're not saying that we should be ungrateful. When I hear someone preach the truth of the word of God, I thank them. Because I don't take for granted that that's always going to happen. Every time I come to church and I hear the word of God taught and honored, what a great blessing. I've been hearing from people since we started writing about this issue in the early 90s from all over the world. And there's truly a famine of the hearing of the words of God. And how can it be with the means that we have of communication, translation, and thank God for that. The word of God is powerful, whether people want to acknowledge it to be that or not. How is it that people are hungry for the word and they can't find it? How could it be? Because in the minds of the preachers, and Paul sees that here, and they're sectarian ways, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus, I'm a Peter, I'm a Christ. There's danger lurking that can destroy the temple of God. Let me cite someone else to give a high view of scholarship. One of the most damaging things that's ever happened to evangelicalism is the anti-scholastic bias. In other words, keep people dumb. Don't let them learn, because then they may question the preacher as to whether what was preached was biblical. That should never happen. We want to be questioned. If we're wrong, to be corrected is a great blessing from God. Dr. Gardner, Zondervan Exegetical Commentary New Testament. Some leaders may be destroyed for their actions, It appears that much of the church has been seduced, says Gardner, with the wisdom of this world and has been tempted to look to certain leaders for their status and sense of belonging and honor in the church. He continues, they too need to see how serious this all is. Leaders will soon change or leave if they have no one who listens to them. And there's some other great commentaries. I have a embarrassment of riches, if I could use a figure of speech, because when I first wanted to understand First Corinthians, I couldn't find a really good commentary. The first one I got was in the late 80s from Dr. Fee. Now that I've got five or six each week I say to Diane, this probably taking so long. Maybe I should just look at a few of these. Never happens. I get every, I, I need to know. I want to understand it. Because you indeed, if you know Christ, are the temple of God, and you will grow if you receive the truth. It's always that way. Throughout church history, 
If the truth is taught to people who love the truth, they grow, and God uses them. And there are certainly reasons for this, and I will mention some of it next week, but not the least of which is that beginning with the so-called triumph under Constantine, church history is a history of trying to build magnificent structures and call it church. We want to be like the world. If they got their Parthenon, we've got to have something better. And whatever we build, it's not the temple of God. Not a sin to have a building. But you can't build the temple of God. God dwells in temples not made with hands. So much for your multi-million dollar building project. Or what, what was the case for Luther, St. Peter's Cathedral. Did you know that God has not ordained building cathedrals? Oh, no. It's not in the Bible. If you build a cathedral, you can't call it the temple of God. Two points of application. The Holy Spirit dwells in a people, not a man-made institution or building. Turning the church into pagan spirituality or secular wisdom destroys it. That's how you destroy the church. How could a person be baptized into as an infant, which, by the way, the Bible doesn't teach. I heard the sermon last week. Thanks for those who got it out there. Eric did a great job. And I want to honor, give honor to honor is due. Eric preached on baptism. And I had to think about that myself. Um, and how many, like me, were baptized as an infant? But then when I started questioning what I believed, why I believed it, what's true, the leaders, one after another, said, the Bible's not true. There are no miracles, and the good Lord just wants you to be a nice person. That's what you get after all the work and money to build Christendom. No gospel, no power of God, but simply try to be a good person. Being deluded, as all sinners are, I thought, well, I'm as good as the next person anyhow. Where's the golf course? So let's go to verse 16 of, uh, of 2 Corinthians 6. I'll start with 2 Corinthians. I taught through that at one time in my life, but let's look at the same topic comes up in the next epistle to the Corinthians that we have extant. A people is God's temple. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them 
and will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Again, the word naos, temple. And another rhetorical question. What's the implied answer? None. None. There's no agreement. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. And then Paul proceeds to cite some passages that either directly cite or allude to Old Testament passages. And what's unique about this, for we are the temple of the living God, I will dwell in them, walk among them, be their God, they shall be my people. The people, here we have not a God for a territory or a God for a certain edifice or a God for a certain philosophy. We have a God for a people. A people who God has chosen, redeemed, and cleansed. And so this alludes generally to the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. If you want to turn there, Jeremiah 31, 33, we'll also read verse 34. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. I know Eric has taught on this lately. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them, To the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. So here, the term to know the Lord is not simply cognitive, but relational. To have a relationship with God through faith. To truly know the Lord. And that is the essence of the new covenant. The word here in 2 Corinthians 6.16, agreement, is a word that could be translated pact or accord. And uh, Dr. Garland says the word agreement to cathesis refers to some kind of consensual affiliation, such as a pact joining persons together in common cause. The verb form is found in Exodus 23.33 in the Septuagint, in the prohibition of joining with the inhabitants of the land in some type of agreement because of the idolatry. So when God brought a people out of Egypt and he brought them through the sea, 
say so First Corinthians 10 type of baptism. And they're brought to himself. They're warned that as the promises are kept, that they do not go into the land and make covenants with the false deities of the people around them. Which, by the way, they did. And thus, apostasy, judgment, and serious declension away from the truth was the rule. And sadly, has been. It says in 1 Thessalonians 1 9, 1 Thessalonians 1 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how, notice it says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That is what repentance looks like. Those who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe on him and trust in him turn from idols to serve the living and true God. God isn't demanding that you build him a massive edifice. What God asks is that we believe in him trust the Savior, and honor him as God with our worship, our lives, and how we treat one another. We'll talk more about the gospel in a moment. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 11.3. See, Paul was concerned about the church in Corinth because they'd been seduced, by paganism, by grand claims of false preachers, by, by ideas that are incompatible with the truth of the gospel. And he warns them. He's concerned about them. He would do whatever he can for their well-being because he doesn't want to see God's work destroyed. 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Christian Standard Bible. By the way, not That's a very uh, well-done translation in many cases. The word seduced is the same word translated destroys in 1 Corinthians 3.17. And it's a word that has to do with dissolution or decay. Or to decay and destroy in that way. And so as Adam and Eve were In the garden, before the fall, there was a cunning, lying serpent who deceived. The word for deceive uh, has an ek, which is an intensive, 
uh, ekapatao, to deceive completely, beguile, seduce, meaning to lead out of the right way and into air. Lead out of the right way and into air. What sort of counterattack does the serpent unleash upon people who are new Christians? Oftentimes, false cults, false teachers, false preachers will come by and say, no, you don't have it right. Your faith in Christ is incomplete because you need to add whatever. They'll come and they'll deny the Trinity. They'll come and deny the deity of Christ. They'll come and preach, come and say, well, which apostles and prophets are you following? Well, the biblical ones only. Well, you don't understand. I guess you don't have a five-fold ministry. Have you heard that lie? Yeah, we do. The apostles, the apostles, apostles and prophets of the Bible, the biblical ones, and then as people are building on that foundation, I got a call. Someone wants to interview me about an article I wrote about New Apostolic Reformation. It's not right. And so in our world, the seducing spirits, the lying demonic presence will tell people you need to do miracles greater than the ones Jesus did. You need to do this. You need to do that. You have the wrong Jesus. Many teach a born-again Jesus who went into hell and uh, lost his deity. There, there are all these things out there. And let me make a statement here and then preach the gospel to you. Given the prevalence of pagan spirituality and false Christ all around us, there's nothing more important than teaching the true doctrine of Christ and correcting the false. I have been told for decades that if I correct false doctrine, I'm sinning by bringing disunity because the lie is that if we have unity at all costs, the best way to have that is don't have any doctrine, just sort of an experience. It's false. Satan will continue to launch his counterattacks and he will attack the deity of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. All of these things are continually under attack. So who is Christ? The very creator. The Trinity is a true doctrine. The triune God of the Bible created the entire universe out of nothing. There are such brilliant, magnificent teaching on this that we can learn. Learn the Gospel of John. John 1, 1 through 118 lays out Christ, his preexistence, 
his person, his glory, his incarnation. The church is built on Christ alone. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is the virgin born son of God, the promised one, the one who is the subject of the seed promises, the promises of the Old Testament, the coming one, the one who not only was born of a virgin, but made claims that only he kept and could keep, who lived a sinless life, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, who shed his blood, the undefiled, sinless Lamb of God, shed his blood to pay for sins. He died for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. He was raised on the third day, bodily raised, appeared to many witnesses, bodily ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, according to Hebrews. And every time someone repents and turns to Christ, that person is given forgiveness of sins, redemption, eternal life, and we escape from God's wrath. The entire world is under the wrath of God. And if you don't believe it, look at the people on the news screaming evil things and wicked things, blaspheming God and thinking that they're virtuous in doing so. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of humans who hate him. The remedy is to turn from vain idols to serve the living God. How do you do that? Trust in Jesus Christ alone. Not by works, but by grace. All those who turn from the idols, the wisdom of the world, and trust Christ have forgiveness of sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And yes, indeed, he's coming again. Verse 4, and I'll cover this lightly for the sake of time, and it'll come up many times. When we fail to define the true, there's a lot of people willing to step in to give you the false. 2 Corinthians 11 for this is ironic. If a person comes, preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, if we receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with us splendidly. There's the irony. Paul preaches the truth. They say you're not spiritual enough for us. We like somebody else better. 
So the opponents are full of themselves, full of their own would-be brilliance, willing to tell everyone how great they are, willing to claim that if you joined their group, gave allegiance to them, you'd be way better off than pathetic, ordinary Christians, and so forth. Dr. Garland says this, the opponents came with eloquence, a swaggering boldness, persuasive words that proclaimed a testimony about themselves rather than about Christ. He continues, not only did they trespass Paul's allotted field, but they sold that field with the tears of a false gospel. Their preaching is false. A different Jesus, spirit and gospel. By the way, the first time it says, alas, other Jesus, and then it says, heteros and heteros. Another, a different, a different. Heterodoxy. And then he continues, that can only lead Christians away from Christ. I've seen that happen tragically to people who came to Christ through writing, preaching ministries. Someone gets a hold of them and says, what formula were you baptized in? Well, I, I was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, you're, you're, you're damned, you're going to hell. You've got to join us and be baptized in the name of Jesus only, or you'll be damned. That's what they're told. I've seen people believe that. Someone is lurking around to destroy the faith of people who came with pure devotion to Christ. Don't allow it. Learn the truth. Search the scriptures. One more slide. And we'll today celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is the basic claim that we see in the book of Acts. You see in here... Acts 19.26, this is in Ephesus, that not only in Ephesus, but in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. This was Demetrius who made silver shrines for Artemis. Oh, no, Artemis will be dethroned. Poor Artemis. They made a lot of money making shrines for Artemis. And verse 25, they said their prosperity depends on his business. What if people didn't support groups that don't even teach the word of God with any kind of clarity? What if they didn't support groups that preach false Christs? Those who abuse the flocks for their own ends. Those who demand that you obey them, swear allegiance to them, sign up to do what they tell you to do, sign up to serve them. Those who know Christ are part of the family of God. They're part of the building of God and they serve as 
part as God gifts each one. We have no way to know who's more important. We can't. Only God knows that. So we don't have to make these judgments. Dear ones, trust in Jesus, love the Lord, care about one another, pray for our country, pray for one another. And one of the things we need to remember is to walk humbly with our God because he really does care for us and he really cares how we treat each other. Everyone the Lord brought to himself is precious to him and he needs to be to me and to you and to all of us. So let's close the sermon of prayer as we prepare today to receive the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for the blessed privilege of sharing your word together with the people you have called your temple. Pray that we can learn how to really care about what you've said and how important it is that we treat each other with kindness and respect. We pray for those who are sick, those who are suffering, that you would have mercy and bring hope and encouragement to each one. We thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.